Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. We're close to three years now, which is crazy. I know. It's too long. It's too long. And you guys yeah. haven't fixed California housing? You just haven't, you haven't fixed it? No. Sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, you can just tell me the exact hour on the exact day that I can buy a home, and then I'm out of this. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, housing and data reporter with Cal Matters, and I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today, July first, Liam, what the hell is happening with California's housing market? I don't know, Matt, but let's try to find out. So, uh, home prices in the wake of a pandemic-induced recession, where unemployment is the highest it's been pretty much since the Great Recession, are not softening as much as some people would think. And meanwhile, the rental market has been hard to decipher what's happening there. So we've got the perfect guest to figure out the answer to those questions. This is uh, Skylar Olson. She is a senior principal economist at Zillow, and she walks us through many burning questions such as, should I buy a house right now? She'll tell you the exact date and time you should make an offer. So please listen to the interview. Stay tuned. We will also be talking about the state budget, which was signed into law just a couple days ago, as well as some marquee housing bills that have lived and died um, with key legislative deadlines being passed in the past week. So there'll be three housing-related measures on the November 2020 statewide ballot. We're not going to be talking about them today, but stay tuned for a future episode when we will break them down in depth. I also recommend reading some of Liam's colleague, I guess your former boss, uh, John Myers up here in Sacramento, who has written extensively over the past couple of weeks about how what we thought were hard and fast rules with legislative deadlines, in fact, don't mean anything. And their <laughs> and their implications for some of the housing ballot measures that you just referenced. Yes, rules meant to be broken. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Let's get to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past couple of weeks. And where does this fortnight's avocado take us, Liam? It takes us to planet Earth. My favorite planet. Matt, I have a question for you. Did you know that you were an environmental impact? Oh, definitely. No question. You're like, I'm me. I'm Matt Levin, an environmental impact that I must be studied under the California Environmental Quality Act. Yes, yes. I sequel myself all the time. <laughs> well, now, Matt, it is official. In fact, according to a recent state appellate court ruling, the existence of humans, or more specifically, college students, mm. must be studied under the California Environmental Quality Act before they're allowed. And this ruling comes from a situation in Berkeley where a neighborhood group sued, claiming that uh, Berkeley's efforts to increase student enrollment was subject to CEQA. The university argued, wait a second, if we have to study our enrollment projections under this law, that makes it a cap, and CEQA shouldn't have any effect on how many students we enroll. But alas, that's not the case. And it turns out that, in fact, these enrollment decisions or enrollment projections are things that are subject to CEQA. So that means universities have to study the effects of increased student populations for their environmental impacts before they're allowed to uh, to have them. Liam, what specifically do you think Berkeley students in particular, what environmental havoc do you think they might be wreaking? 
there was a South Park episode a number of years ago where they spent some time in the Bay Area and everyone sort of smelled their own farts and it was a level of smugness. Um, mm. And so perhaps Berkeley students need to be evaluated for their smugness. And that's the environmental impact. Wow. They, uh... Well, as a former Berkeley undergrad, I can tell you there were a lot of emissions and smoke i think at various co-op parties that I oh attended. i see i thought I you were gonna go in uh, that direction which is a little more cliche but also doesn't involve farts liam the marijuana thing yeah it's, yeah. yeah stereotypical it seems keeping in mind here that berkeley is one of the most expensive rental markets for any uc i mean almost all the ucs are in some of the most pricey real estate in california which is problematic but you know you can make an argument here i'm gonna you know, make an argument in favor of studying enrollment projections which is that if you oversubscribe what you plan to do for the school and you don't build the housing or the infrastructure to support those students then it's going to make it much harder or more expensive for those students to live there and so you can very easily make an argument for if not sequa why some other planning should be done to mm -hmm. ensure that there's enough places to live for people who are going to be students there. In the defense of whoever went forward with this lawsuit, yeah. Berkeley is so much nicer when there's no students. It is so much nicer. Like, I spent summers in Berkeley when there were no undergrads. Yeah. It is such a better place but than when are, the students are actually there. But you, you just, you're a misanthrope. You dislike people. And so as a result, it, it, this all makes sense that you're taking this point of view. No, I mean, specifically, I dislike and always have, you know, 18 to 22 year olds. I think everybody dislikes 18 to 22 year olds, even if you're between 18 and 22. But yeah, I mean, you could wait in line at Cheese Board uh -huh, for like uh -huh. half the time. Right. You could walk through Memorial Glade without there being, you know, 7 million games of hacky sack interfering with your stroll. It's a better place. They should have just went with that argument. Like we can all agree Berkeley is better without students. And they would have like alumni endorsing that. I'm not the only person that feels this way. Yet another sequel related avocado. I feel like we've had a few of those over the lifespan of the avocado. Let's move on to uh, what happened in the state legislature over the past couple weeks. The state is constitutionally mandated to pass a balanced budget. State legislature is by June 15th. Turns out that means different things to different people. But we do have the outlines of a detailed budget that have been signed into law with some details that have yet to be completely determined. But we can say what's happening on the homelessness and housing front. So, yeah, I mean, when you think budgets, you think money. So let's talk first about some of the money that's in the budget for housing. Sure. So I'll give you some of the specific spending items that I think are most important then give you kind of a broad takeaway of what that means. So... This budget includes $500 million for acquisitions of hotels and motels for homeless housing as part of Project Home Key. Who's ever in the Newsom administration whose unlucky job it is to uh, listen, listen to, to this, this. podcast, yeah, uh -huh. Uh -huh. I'm expecting a text that says, hey, thanks for calling it Home Key. Otherwise, <laughs> you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. Right. So Project Home Key, formerly Project Room Key, which is ambitious plan from Governor Gavin Newsom to use vacant motel rooms for emergency housing for people experiencing homelessness during the pandemic. The plan for this $500 million is, okay, let's not just rent these hotel rooms, let's buy the hotels. And then that's housing that can be converted to some type of homeless housing. So $500 million for that. The legislature was able to get in $350 million for flexible funds for cities to spend 
on a variety of homelessness services. That's something that the Newsom administration initially didn't have in their pandemic revised budget proposal, but that did end up in the ultimate budget that is now law. That's especially significant. I mean, LA saw another double digit increase in homelessness per its most recent numbers, and that was even before the pandemic. And so certainly the homeless crisis has not gone away and is almost certainly even worse than it was before. Going back to other things of note in the housing and homelessness budget, 500 million in the low income housing tax credit, which is a sizable amount. Low income affordable housing developers rely on that funding more than anything else to build subsidized housing here in California. There were some quote unquote cuts. 400 million is at least temporarily gone from funding for mixed income housing developments, grant funding that cities and developers can get to build more infrastructure that is supposed to accompany new housing. I put quotation marks around these cuts because the legislature successfully negotiated in if the feds come up with more money for states to help them deal with their budget deficits, like the one California was facing, that $400 million will come back. It will be restored. So it is one of the quote-unquote trigger cuts that is contingent upon additional federal funding. So the overall big picture here on the money side of things Housing and homelessness funding fared relatively well, considering we had a $54 billion billion (laughs) pandemic-induced recession. A lot of that is reflective of the Newsom administration's priorities, the May revise. Most of what I just detailed was in Newsom's plan. And also looking at some of the other issue areas that did get cut, housing and homelessness money did all right, all things considered. And advocates would tell you that too. The other big takeaway here is it's a doubling down on Project Home Key as the pillar of Newsom's homelessness strategy. And there's some concerns as to whether this is actually going to work. Let's quickly talk about what's happening in L.A., which you've written about, Liam. What has happened in L.A. with Project Room Key slash Home Key? Right. Whatever key, uh, the key to solving this problem. So, yeah, I mean, the state. Major key. Major key. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the governor's goal was for 15,000 motel rooms to be converted to at least temporary homeless housing. And that was about 10% of the home state's homeless population. LA had put out its own goal of 15,000 as well. And for the last month, they've stalled. I mean, they're at 3,600 rooms under contract. And that's been the same number that's been the case basically just about a month. And that goes to show that they're kind of reaching a peak at what they can or are able to do, which is certainly problematic for the homeless situation down here, but also could point to some problems that you'd have statewide in getting these under contract. Part of the problem is that, and Newsom has emphasized this, is local governments have to say, yes, we want to do it. And there are some cities in LA County, Bell Gardens, Norwalk, come to mind immediately where they've gone so far as to try to file lawsuits or pass ordinances that would prevent the county from citing these hotels in their communities. And so if cities say no, then that makes it significantly harder to get this done at a scale that they need, especially since transition here, that there has to be a really quick spending of this money. Yeah, that's right. So part of the reason housing and homelessness fared so well in this budget was because there was federal money they could use to fund it. This wasn't really state general fund money, which took a massive, massive hit as revenues declined. They're using federal emergency relief funds that are kind of flexible funds. And the Newsom administration has said, okay, let's use that funding for buying these hotels. The string is they got to buy these hotels 
by December 31st of this year. Otherwise, the funding evaporates. So they have six months to buy $500 million worth of hotels. And they really have less time than that because, as you mentioned, cities have to sign off on this. The only part of what you laid out I would dispute is Newsom has not emphasized that cities have to Mm -hmm. sign off on this. You have to have counties and cities identify the properties, negotiate a sale, a purchase price with the motel owner, get money from the state, have the state buy it, and then hope nobody objects to it and wants to sue you. It is an unprecedented effort. It truly is. When Newsom talks about how this is first in the nation and nobody's ever tried this before, he's right. Although other states are trying to do this as well now. The other thing to keep in mind as to whether this will work or not, it is expensive. It's expensive to convert motels into homeless housing. Now, this money is supposed to be used just to buy the motels, And the rosiest estimate the state has for the cost per unit of a motel is about $100,000 per unit. Mm. So just doing the simple math, how far does $500 get you? That's 5,000 units, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that is not something to sneeze at. That is 5,000 units of housing wasn't there before and could be acquired quickly, which is why Newsom's folks are doing this. But that is less than 5% of the unsheltered population in the state. As of the data from last year, I mean, that's January 2019 estimates of the unsheltered. Right, before the virus, yeah. So is this going to solve the problem? No. Could it help in a meaningful way? Yes, but it is going to be complicated. That's the cost just to buy the property, but then there's a huge cost to renovate the property and then a huge cost to staff and maintain the property as well. And that's not money that's being allocated here. So it's not just this one-time cost. Exactly. And I recommend people take a look at a story I did a few weeks back that broke down what exactly it takes in terms of cost and time to transform a motel into homeless housing. And I focused in on a Cono Lodge in Anaheim that was converted by an affordable housing developer into permanent supportive housing. And the project's not done yet, but the price tag that was attached to it per unit is $360,000 per unit, which ain't cheap. Now, again, the Newsom administration would argue, and I think rightly so, yeah, that ain't cheap, but we think we can do it a little cheaper, and that's a hell of a lot cheaper than building permanent supportive housing from scratch, which you've written about extensively, just give us an idea. How much does that cost? Well, in LA, there were numbers, which is, you know, 600000 a unit for permanent support. And again, this, there's ongoing funding attached to that because you have to have the services that are connected to it, like mental health services, drug services, economic assistance services that tend to be connected to these projects as well. How bad would it be if Newsom doesn't spend all of this money and buy all these hotels in the next six months? I think extremely bad, A, for the problem in that a significant number of homeless people on the streets and in housing precarious situations, especially at this time, and then you're giving money back to the federal government. That was your top priority. You devoted your entire state of the state speech to that even before the pandemic hit. And so to have a big homelessness plan and to have the money and then have to give homelessness money back seems to me it would be a real shame, to say the least. And we should also say the latest numbers statewide, they have reached the statewide goal of leasing more than 15,000 hotel rooms, and now over 14,000 are occupied. That's from this week Newsom made that announcement when trumpeting what was in the budget. Okay, that's Project Room Key slash Home Key slash, as I said on Twitter, and God do I hate referencing myself on Twitter, 
details to be determined key. Which, again, Newsom administration, if you're listening, I'd expect some small royalties if you want to use that name, but nothing that should prevent you from asking me. Right, right. I think project details to be determined key would help with a lot of the subject lines in the emails that I've been sending. So... Let's move to, because we also was uh, kind of a key deadline for some legislation. Mm-hmm. Bills had to get out of the uh, House of Origin, they call it. Senate bills had to get out of the Senate. Assembly bills had to get out of the Assembly. And there are some things missing from the budget that you'd think would be necessary as part of dealing with coronavirus. And so there are some bills to that effect. Tell us what's going on. Probably the most noteworthy thing that was conspicuously absent from the budget was any type of specific assistance for renters and landlords. Right. So that everyone is worried about this looming eviction wave when certain eviction moratoriums are lifted eventually or the state of emergency is lifted or courts start resuming evictions, which is really the clock that everyone is worried about. Yeah. That you'll have all these renters who have been laid off, haven't been able to pay their rent. What happens then? And also what happens to the landlords who haven't been collecting on the rent, who have bills to pay. Yep. So a couple months ago, Senate leader Atkins introduced a plan that was initially unveiled in the context of the budget yep. to help both renters and landlords. That did not make it into the budget, and there was no proposal from the Newsom administration for renter and landlord relief in the budget, which means all the action is on two bills now in the legislature. Senate Bill 1410, which is that Atkins proposal, and Assembly Bill 1436, which is a proposal from Assemblyman David Chu, Democrat from San Francisco, and kind of, I mean, I think it's fair to say, biggest voice for tenants issues in the legislature. So I'll just quickly go over what are in these two bills, which I think will have to be reconciled at some point. The Chu bill is the easier one to describe because it doesn't have really money attached to it for landlords. I think that's the biggest reason. So the Chu bill is the one supported by tenants organizations, and it would put into law the biggest thing that tenants groups wants, which is let's take evictions due to non-payment of rent during the pandemic completely off the table. So if you missed rent, you're a renter in April, May, June, July, August, and then maybe, depending on how long the state of emergency lasts, even longer than that, The landlord could not go to the courts and say, you missed your rent. You got to get out of the apartment. That's the most important element of this bill and what tenant groups have been demanding since the early days of the state of emergency. That's AB 1436. Let's talk about SB 1410, which is kind of a competing proposal. This is the Atkins plan. Basically, if a landlord is wants to evict you for non-payment of rent or for other reasons, maybe you have people who are living in your unit that aren't on the lease, and then they want to do it during the uh, state of emergency plus an unspecified number of days, literally in the bill, at one point it just was a blank, but now it just says plus an unspecified number of days afterwards. If the landlord wants to evict you, they have to present you with a plan to repay your missed rent to the state. And the renter would not have to start making those payments on their missed rent until 2024. Those payments would go to the state. They'd have 10 years to pay it off. And if they're making below a certain amount of state median income, they get either discounts on how much they have to pay back or they're completely exempt from paying it back. So this one is very complicated, but I guess the benefit is that for landlords is that they get at least some compensation, whereas in the other bill they don't. Exactly. And that compensation is complicated. It is a tax credit that the landlord gets in the amount 
of the missed rent payments. That tax credit is slated for tax year 2024. What's a landlord supposed to do if they have mortgage and other bills they need to pay with those missed rent payments? Well, the answer Atkins would say is you can sell that tax credit on a secondary market, get some money for it, and that can be used to meet your current needs. So landlords are, they don't oppose this bill. They definitely like this approach more than the CHU approach. Which is nothing. Which is nothing specifically for them and prevents them from using eviction as a tool to try to compel rent payment or just to get rid of what they feel might be problematic tenants. But they haven't fully wrapped their arms around it because they have concerns with whether those tax credits are actually going to materialize into real money, especially if you have a tax credit market that's flooded with these credits where you might be getting pennies in the dollar or maybe quarters on the dollar or something Mm -hmm. like that. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of the current state of these things. There are all these external variables in play that affect when the legislature actually has to come up with something. Circling all over this is the fact that the folks in the legislature are trying to do this without having access to really any substantial money to be able to do this in a, in a way that would actually deal with the problem frontally. I mean, we talked about how bad the budget was. The money just doesn't exist, right? And so who's left holding the bag, I think, is the question that these bills are trying to answer. I will say, like, yes, the state doesn't have money, but there is an argument where it's a prioritization of the resources that they have less, right? So they did have billions in federal kind of bailout aid. That's what funded Project Home Key. The administration conceivably, and the legislature too, could have said, well, instead of putting the money towards X, Y, and Z, we're going to put the money towards this renter landlord assistance package. I mean, that other states have done that. That is a difficult thing, obviously. I don't want it to sound like they had no resources at their disposal. I think their resources are incredibly constrained, but they could have done something if they wanted to. Yeah, that's a fair point. So with both of these bills, there are clocks that are ticking outside of the legislature that will greatly inform when and if action happens. And those clocks are when the Judicial Council, which is the governing body of the state court system, decides they're going to resume eviction cases. Now, tenant groups were terrified because it seemed like the Judicial Council was going to do just that just a few weeks ago, actually. Then legislators and tenant groups said, please, 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 we haven't come up with a plan yet. Don't do this yet. And the Judicial Council backed off. But I think it's fair to say the Judicial Council doesn't want to postpone eviction proceedings indefinitely. Yeah, and I think they have a fair argument that like, look, like- like It's not their job. It's not their job. Like if the legislature wants to do eviction protections, then they could pass a law. That's what they do. And that's the most important clock is what the Judicial Council does. Then there's federal aid. When and if the legislature- will receive a boatload of money from the federal government, either specifically attached to renter and landlord assistance, which is possible, and there's bills in Congress that would do that, or just as general kind of state relief funds. And not only that, I mean, we go into this a little bit in the interview, but there's a significant increase in unemployment benefits, which many are attributing for helping renters pay their rents right now. And that is scheduled to expire at the end of July. If that were to happen, then the need for this could be even greater than it is. That is the third clock I wanted to talk about. Beyond the Judicial Council and what they decide to do, that's the most important clock. Because 
if enhanced unemployment benefits run out, I would venture to say that August 1st and then September 1st, you're going to see significantly more missed rent payments. And then the problem, even if you can't pursue an eviction, the problem becomes that much more pressing. So whatever the legislature ends up passing has to take effect immediately. They have two options here, which I think are important for people to understand. One is they can try to tuck it into budget trailer bills, which is, I think, probably what's going to happen, right. which is kind of a sneaky way of having any type of renter-landlord assistance program only requiring a majority vote in both chambers and then immediately become law. If that doesn't happen, they have to do a two-thirds vote in each chamber because it's an urgency measure, which would require that as soon as the bill is signed into law by Governor Newsom, it has effect, right? You can't wait until January 1st, as most laws work, for this type of program to go into effect. So it'll be incredibly interesting to see what actually happens with these specific proposals, considering all of the variables outplay outside of the legislature's specific control. Okay, so speaking of renters and missed rent payments, let's talk about what the hell is happening quickly in the housing market and the rental market, because it doesn't make any sense to me, at least the housing portion of it. So we're going great depth with Skylar on the interview, but I just wanted to kind of frame the context of the conversation before we do it with some numbers and some some trends. And so I think most people thought that, oh, people's incomes are getting really hit. Therefore, you'd think that housing prices would go down and rents would go down. And we're certainly not seeing that to any extent compared to what I think people thought. Median home value in California right now, about $580,000. And that's actually up a little less than 1% since February, according to Zillow data. In LA, the number is the median home value is just under 700 grand. It's also up a little less than 1%. San Francisco metro area, uh, 1.1 million for home, and that's down about 1% since February. So no big real changes in, in home prices there. What about rentals? Yeah. Rentals is a little bit different. It also depends on the study that you're looking at at the moment. But LA, according to Zillow stuff, not a ton of changes. LA metro area, median rental is 2500 a month. That's down about 16 bucks since February. And then San Francisco, 3121 a month, down about $7 since February. So not really any major changes there. So two things real quickly. The rate of growth is significantly lower for both home prices and for rentals month over month, at least compared to last year or previous years, if that makes sense. That still is not like satisfying, at least to me personally, because I would expect there to be an actual drop decline as opposed to just a slower rate of growth. Then the other thing is the home price data is more reliable than the rental data. If Zumper just came out with their rental market report, which did show significant declines in month to month, or I think actually year over year rents in San Francisco specifically, like eye-poppingly big double digit percentage declines. I do think says something like there is downward movement in the rental market. However, rental data is problematic for a bunch of reasons and particularly Zumper because of the methodology they use and a bias towards what's actually listed on rental sites. And it's particularly hard to figure out what's going on in kind of the lower end of the rental market, as opposed to a luxury unit comes online. That's going to be more likely to be captured in the vast majority of rental data reports than 
something that's not rent controlled, but is not the nicest apartment in the world that gets advertised on Craigslist, but not on hot pads, let's say. That's it. That's all I want to say. I am confused. It is the worst economy since the Great Depression, and the housing market seems relatively immune from it. Yeah. I mean, you're not confused? I'm very confused. I mean, I mean, you know, I know that's hard for you to say on a uh, personal uh, level. Uh, <laughs> Skylar helped us de- is, has helped us demystify this a little bit, but I think she's uh, also somewhat mystified. So with that, let's talk with Skylar. We are here with Skylar Olson. She's a senior principal economist at Zillow. Skylar, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So uh, correct if I'm wrong, but the way I understand housing markets sort of typically work is that when people have less money, then housing prices and rents tend to fall too. But it doesn't really seem to be happening in this case. Can you explain what's going on? Why can't I buy a home for $35? It is my intense pleasure to remind everyone that that was probably overly simple. So I think the intuition that everyone has is the demand shock of it all, right? The unemployment and the lower mm-hmm, yeah. income. And yeah. surely that means no one's going to show up and buy homes. And really, initially, absolutely, that's what happened. Buyers took a huge step back. We just saw an incredible drop of pending sales. But the thing is, is that in this kind of environment, think about the challenge that it was, right? It was also just a logistical challenge and then a confidence hit to sellers as well. So you have the demand shock, that lowers prices, that lowers quantities, but you also have huge supply shock where not just builders, but existing homeowners took their homes off the market or they just couldn't list their home like they had planned to. So we had a similar huge fall in the new listings coming on the market. So Mm -hmm. even if buyers weren't showing up, neither were sellers, so that the few buyers that were looking around, it's this intuition, like, why aren't there a bunch of homes on the market for sale that are selling very quickly? Well, there are no homes on the market for sale. And then in the recovery, we've just seen buyers come back way faster than sellers. Sellers are still hesitating, but that buyer return has really been propping up prices. Why do you think the sellers aren't there? Do you think it's like even just things as simple, like, I don't want random people walking into my house? Oh, yeah. I think a lot of it is just the simple logistics of it. Also, just whether or not you're allowed to is kind of Mm. unclear sometimes. Or whether you can complete the process if the county office, you know, isn't there to accept the papers being filed at the end. You know, there are a lot of ways that it's just hard in order to get things done. But even without that, just imagine how uncertainty impacts your decision. Well, if you're Mm -hmm. a seller, most sellers are also buyers. So you're going to make two Mm. very uncertain decisions. And you could kind of see just from that intuition that it might take sellers a little bit longer and they need a little bit more encouragement to come back. Now, that said, they have returned, for example, in San Francisco and, well, just San Francisco, I guess. (laughs) There are more more listings now than there were at this time, at least last year. What's still low is the new listings coming to the market. But what's sometimes really high relative to last year is the number of pending at this time. So the number of, of sales or buyers returning. In other words. That's kind of what's happening in terms of home prices. What's the trend with rents? What do we know about how rents are trending and, and how does that relate to home prices? Imagine the same hit, the same demand shock, except it's a little worse because the unemployment is much more heavily experienced by, you know, non-essential workers that are more likely to be renters. So it's really experiencing a, a harder hit from job loss and unemployment. Now also consider 
that for the homeowner, it's a little easier to get straight to you and support you. You can refinance from really low right, interest rates. Right, yeah. You've got the forbearance. For the rent side, you know, eviction moratoriums aside, it's really just that unemployment benefit that ends up helping you pay the rent. The negotiation to lower your rent as opposed to refinance, right, where you can kind of go through a formal process, that's very hard to do, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, also consider in the for sale market, I had that supply shock. You know, sellers just stopped showing up and that supported prices. In this environment, you know, the landlord can't really pull back that vacant unit. They need to fill it because they need that value chain to go up, you know, to their mortgage, to their property taxes. So they don't have that supply pullback. They can over time, but that in itself takes a long time. That's a conversion. You know, that's a big Mm -hmm. business decision on top of that. So you have all the impact of the demand shock from the job loss, but you don't have this supply shock that ends up supporting prices. And if anything, that job hit was harder. And really, in in general, when we consider the kinds of people who are renters and homeowners, you know, renters do tend to experience housing burdens. They have much lower levels of savings. They are a more vulnerable population and the market reflects that. You mentioned the unemployment insurance, and this has been interesting to me. So this is the expanded unemployment insurance that was passed as part of the CARES Act, the federal stimulus that was done by Congress after the immediate impacts of the coronavirus, giving folks an extra 600 bucks a week if they're unemployed. And so I wonder, you look, and, and a lot of the, the data on this isn't fantastic, but you know, you look at data from the National Multifamily Housing Council about the number of people who are paying their rent. There's some new census data that looks at this as well. And it seems like the percentage of people paying is a lot higher than I expected and that a lot a lot of other analysts expected at the beginning of this, given the, the sort of sheer amount of job losses. Are you seeing the same thing? And, and would you attribute that to the unemployment insurance expansion? Yeah. And the the timing, I think, matters. I mean, if you look at what's coming out of the National Multifamily Housing Council, they had lower rent payment numbers in April than they did in May and June. It got much better from April to May and then a little bit better from May to June. And to me, that means you finally got the checks in the pockets of the people that need it. Our rent numbers, when we estimate what has been happening to rent, the lowest rent drops were also in April, and then things got a little bit better in May and then in June. Mm-hmm. But like, take Fresno, California, for example, you had a full one percentage point drop in April, and then it got you know a little bit less of a drop in, in May and June. But that's a big impact, and to me, that means that's a lot of work on rent. You know, that is really causing landlords to consider renegotiating lower rent for even existing tenants. Just you know, mm-hmm. keep that value flowing through. Could you walk us through? the rest of the year and what you expect to happen with single family home prices and apartment rentals? So one, we have a much more formal forecast for the for sale side of things. And I think it's also kind of interesting to note that we've been updating that forecast over time and it's become more and more and more optimistic every month, every time we reincorporate new information. So at first that forecast was you know, let's build kind of this macroeconomic model, right, where we're relating housing activity and housing prices to these GDP forecasts coming out of other econ shops. And then what's going to happen? And at first it was, oh, home prices are going to fall anywhere from 2 to 3% from okay. the highs that they were in February all the way to October. Well, then we started incorporating, you know, our data, the, the pending sales, the fall wasn't as uh, much as we would have thought. And mm-hmm. it recovered 
much more quickly. So that now, as opposed to the 2 to 3%, now you're looking at a little bit less than 1%. So basically, as your model incorporated what was actually happening, it kind of showed that the housing market was more divorced from the general economy than you might have otherwise expected earlier on. Yeah, I think more divorced in the sense of one of the most resilient industries in the economy. A lot of what we're understanding right now when we talk about low inventory is in the now of it all. So buyers much more aggressive in this environment than, say, sellers. But if you think about where even that dynamic would have come from, like, why would buyers be so resilient? Why would they, you know, persist, right? Yeah, um, right at a time right. that it's so uncertain. Yeah. When you just remember all the previous home shopping seasons leading up to this crisis, where inventory had been so low, we hadn't been building then either, right? We didn't have the excess building because we didn't have excess credit. We didn't have excess credit driving, excess homeowners driving a building boom leading into this crisis. It was much different. Now we know that that was not a, you know, we broke that record in terms of low inventory, right? Now we've got really low inventory. But then we talked about how we had record low inventory at a time when there was a huge millennial generation finally reaching home buying ages, but credit was still really tight. And the people who got mortgages leading up to this crisis were pretty credit worthy. So then when we kind of think about who was the hopeful home buyer, they were already different from the population as a whole because mm-hmm. access to home ownership had already become more and more difficult. Those home values popped out of that last crisis like crazy and incomes didn't grow with them. So you already had down payments that took so much more savings, so much more time. You had to be a much more mature potential homeowner even to access home ownership. And so when you think about is the for sale side of the market resilient? Well, yeah, it has the credit worthy already in it. It had the resilient households and that makes the market itself also more resilient. So kind of what you're saying is if you had worked over, you know, the last five to 10 years in California and socked away 25 grand for a down payment, these people are not redirecting that down payment into general savings. They're saying, uh, you know, I'm here. I'm still here for this down payment. Get me a house. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you, you know, if, if buying before the crisis, the risk was a bidding war and an escalation yeah. clause mm-hmm. that would push you beyond, you know, what you probably could afford, you know, that that would be pretty risky in this climate. Well, the risk is you're going to make a commitment to a house a bit more virtually. And I don't think a lot of buyers anticipated how low the inventory would be. I think a lot of them did expect to show up and find deals. They weren't there. Is there something about the demographics of homeowners, especially here in California, that is also allowing them to not put their properties on the market, like shielding them from job losses or the broader economy that would force them to sell, kind of a la what happened in the Great Recession or even previous recessions? Absolutely. Leading into the last crisis, you know, we had a lot of excess credit that was extending a lot of credit to homeowners that couldn't really withstand a recession. And so that when the recession hit and you had this adjustable rate loans, over 50% of loans back then were not the vanilla 30-year fixed loan. I mean, that's kind of incredible to think of now because before this crisis, over 90% are, you know, it's a very stable loan product. But before that, a lot of no-doc loans, predatory credit and adjustable rate mortgages so that when you went through a job loss, you couldn't pay that mortgage payment. 
And now you're in a climate where because there was excess inventory because of the building boom, that made it easier for prices to start to fall. And once prices fall, if you can no longer pay your mortgage, now it's hard to also sell your home and cover that mortgage balance, right? Because prices have started to come down. So now you've got the foreclosures. The foreclosures is a snowballing effect on prices just down and down and down because there are so many homeowners. You know, we estimate there are about 4.5 million homeowners in the last bubble and bust that really should not have been extended uh, mortgage credit at the time. So they were dumped back onto the rental market. This time, what it took to become a homeowner before this crisis, because home values were so high relative to income, because credit was still very tight, and because of the reforms that were done after the last crisis in terms of how much you had to document your income, the marginal home buyer was also more credit worthy. You know, even without the CARES Act, though I, I do want to point out that the CARES Act and forbearance is absolutely helping to keep distressed yep. sales out of the picture. But even if you had someone in this environment who, okay, I, you know, I'm going to go delinquent, and we're starting to see delinquencies rise, there will be those people who will absolutely have to sell because of job loss. But because the inventory is so constrained already, you probably won't have to sell at such a low price that you can't cover your mortgage. So we'll have less of those distressed sales in the market, and that in turn, you know, you won't have the snowball. How about rents? I mean, we spend a lot, a lot of time just now on the home prices, but I mean, rents appear in San Francisco in particular, I guess. Bay Area ticked down a little bit. Is that right? And do you see that persisting? Yeah, everywhere ticked down a little bit. So it's stabilized since April. So April was the worst. We kind of saw rent start to stabilize again through May and June. You know, we don't have a formal forecast, but I absolutely worry about the expiration of the unemployment benefits. That timing mm-hmm. where rent got mm-hmm. soft is a signal to me that it mattered. You know, the unemployment benefits absolutely mattered in terms of helping people pay their rent. You know, the other thing to think about, too, when you think about those numbers coming out of the National Multifamily Housing Council, their survey covers around 30% of the market. They're a little higher end, yeah. And the the ones that have kind of professional property management. Mm -hmm. So the mom and pop landlords who are probably more likely housing lower income households, we're not capturing them, you know, when we say, you know, oh, well, a good 90% of people right, manage right, to pay, right. you know, yeah. I think we're really going to see rent start to soften significantly when, you know, that job loss really going to hit the market without the unemployment benefits. And actually, yeah. you know, one of the signals that we have of whether they're still paying their former lease or not, the census data that we just pulled to look at people moving back in with mom and dad, you know, we had a 10% rise last year in terms of the number of people moved back in with parents and a huge share of the people that moved back in are under the age of 25. And if you lose your job in that age group, yep. you know, yep. it's a pretty common strategy actually you know, to move right. back uh, home right. with mom and dad. And that's leaving the rental market. So it was a huge amount of people. And when we look at kind of where the markets that rent went the softest, it often was in areas that had a, a large share of the population in non-essential work or service, uh-huh. you know, Food, but also a larger share of renters who were younger. So what you're saying is not only are millennials living in their parents' basements right now, but Gen also Z. Gen Z is also Gen Z. now in the basement with them. So we have an, <laughs> it's a really tight basement. Just because I've done a little reporting on this too, those numbers were already, I think, shockingly high to a lot of people. So in California, something like 40% of 18 to 34-year-olds based on ACS data still live with at least one parent. We also related that to rent burdens, right? That yep. share is higher in places where the rent takes up so much more of your income. And 
yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. And the, the other thing that's true about the millennials, you know, the ones that really couldn't move back out again tended to be older millennials, the ones that mm. graduated in the last crisis. Uh, so now think of those Gen Z I mean, graduating, graduating now, the yeah. worst labor yeah. market, you know, that you yeah. can see. They'll absolutely haunt their parents' basements for a while. Going to be some depressing TikToks from <laughs> parents' basements. You know, when you think about how these markets are related, well, all of them are, you know, economists are really big about that kind of stuff. But that was actually one of the reasons why we thought inventory pre-crisis was so low, because boomers weren't downsizing, because they yeah. were still housing adult children. So when you think about future housing availability and access to home ownership, you know, with these rising prices over a much longer span of time, not just this crisis, because of persistently low inventory, when you have this massive millennial generation, you know, showing up. Because mm. boomers aren't really releasing their homes back into the wild. They're housing adult children. So here in California, I think we're having a particularly acute debate about a topic that's pretty widespread in the rest of the country, which is what's happening with telecommuting and how is that shifting where people want to live? And I'm curious what evidence you've seen that there's actually been a shift in whether people are less likely to want to live in kind of dense urban cores versus the suburbs. Yeah, we got so many questions about this. You know, it's a little bit too early to look at kind of changing premiums from sales data or anything like that. So we just mm -hmm. turned to search. With the caveat that when we look at search data, I think people who also use Zillow for aspirational search, right? Not just mm -hmm. incredibly yeah. ready to, to mm -hmm. buy a house. So with the caveat that, you know, search can do a lot of really interesting things, it was at least really interesting to check through the numbers and find that almost every single major metropolitan area, everyone is rising urban search. Everyone is rising urban and rising rural and falling suburbs. But the only place huh. where it's falling urban is the New York metropolitan area, okay. San Jose metro, uh, and Miami. And I just uh, listed the three most expensive urban markets. Well, in terms of its difference between urban and suburban, right? The disparity yeah. between the two is extreme. For the most part, you still see rising urban search and you see a rising rural search too. Huh. Um, but the suburbs now are, are falling. So what do you make of that? Well, one, you know, I find it very hard to believe that we will suddenly become different people, you know, at the mm -hmm. end of this. So now let's just assume for this thought experiment to explain what's happening, that your preferences are going to be the same. But the okay. thing that's changed is that you have this new opportunity, right, where you could potentially work from home. And I yeah. think the mm -hmm. shape of the new opportunity is going to be less about a massive share of the population going fully remote, like we're doing right now. I mean, we're getting it done. But I think the new share will be, well, you go into work three days a week, right, but you get to work mm -hmm. from home for two. So the 45-minute commute becomes the 60, hence the rising of the rural share, right, mm. When you think about where are we able to build new homes in San Francisco, for example, it's either apartments or more and more on the periphery. Mm -hmm. So you're going to access that periphery because it's more affordable. And I've lowered yeah. the cost of living there because the cost used to be your time in the yeah. form of a horrendous commute. But, you know, right. now you're good. And then a lot of the moves that we think might happen, because it's a lot of sentiment that people aren't loving their home as a office plus school plus gym plus everything. <laughs> Definitely true. <laughs> so sure, you might move, you know, in order to have fully embraced the new opportunity of remote work, but it'll be in favor of a place with an actual, you know, dedicated office or at least another room or 
hey, if I'm housing, you know, adult children, maybe a double master or some more ensuite bathrooms, you know, so we can at least pretend. And then if you think about the opportunity that, you know, say you just love urban areas and you love having access to amenities and you love that rich vibrancy and culture, you know, and if you do go fully remote, you know, I don't think you're going to suddenly become a rural homesteader. You're going to live in a different city every year. I think that's why we're only really seeing a lower share of the urban search in places where that affordability trade-off between just buying a larger home if I'm going to work from home anyway is so extreme. So one thing that we are seeing, at least in California, first of all, housing supply and housing production was already really low compared to historical standards. And we're seeing a gigantic drop off somewhat on the line of what we saw 10 years ago in terms of production. How do you see that contributing to to long-term issues when it comes to home prices and and to rents? Yeah, I mean, looking at the numbers coming out of the builder expectation surveys, those are actually getting better quickly as well. I don't know. You know, in terms of the long term, I I do think we've seen this huge drop off and we're absolutely, you know, not able to do a lot of projects right now. But I think over the long run, it'll absolutely hurt that we don't have this period of building. But if things continue to do well, like they're doing and prices are supported, I think actually the for sale builders will return more quickly. I worry more about the long term impacts of not being able to build rental units because rent Mm -hmm. is going to struggle for a longer period of time, especially because you already had higher housing burdens in that segment. Rent took up a really large share of income and the resiliency is so low. The level of savings is so low. So I think it absolutely will impact rent. If rent falls, that lowers the return for new buildings in that market where we really needed we need a lot of units in that sense too, you know, yeah. um, that I think could, you know, cause continual uh, pressure on rent burdens. In a lot of these California markets, you already have situations where if I match up, you know, the typical household income and typical rent, that's a rent burden already above that 30%. That right. market rate rent right. already takes up above the you know, the recommendations. So after the Great Recession, there were a lot of institutional investors that snapped up single family homes, particularly in foreclosure auctions. Obviously, we're seeing less in terms of foreclosure auctions right now. But have you seen any other evidence of that behavior? No, no. I, Interesting. The opportunity is not there. Just because the inventory is so low? Yeah. Uh, there's not a foreclosure mill for them to snap up the homes? Also doesn't happen right at the beginning. If you think about the foreclosure process, right, you got to be delinquent for, mm-hmm. uh, what is it? Uh, well, you know, more time, whether it's 90 yeah. or 120 before they can proceed. But, it, it, you know, in terms of hitting that milestone where you would even foreclose, I don't think you would anyway, right? Because prices haven't fallen enough. You could always just sell instead of uh, foreclosing on your property. Yeah, no, the opportunity is just not here. And yeah, we don't really see that activity happening. Is the housing market going to take a softer dip than it did in, let's say, like the dot-com bust or like the early 90s recession? Yeah, I think so. And if you think about that original forecast, that was kind of what the original forecast was capturing. What does housing normally do? You know, when GDP yeah. does X, right? That was a good voice, by the way. I like that yeah, voice. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like now when we incorporated all this new ideas about this total lack of inventory because of the logistical challenge and the, you know, incredible uncertainty, and you actually have a much more mild experience than that. Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, I don't know how bananas that strikes you, Liam, but we are at what now? 16% unemployment in California, 15 and a half. Over 20 in LA, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- and that is far worse than it was at the depths of the Great Recession and worse than pretty much any other recession aside from the Great Depression. And yet the housing market is going to have a softer landing, primarily because the people who currently own homes are wealthy enough to kind of weather this storm and not have to put the homes on the market. Is that an unfair characterization of what's happening? No, that's, I think, the, the summary element of it. You know, they are more credit worthy at the, at the very least. That's insane. But, I, you know, I, should, I do want to mention, I do want to mention that almost all the forecasts that I see for even, you know, GDP, everything, right? Everyone always has a caveat of this assumes that the government will continue to support if unemployment mm. remains so crazy, right? Yeah. So very yeah. high. If jobs do not return, the assumption is, is that the government will do what is expected, right? What they did kind of, you know, the first time to help people get over the, the crisis. So if you don't have that, then yeah. things could go harder. No. So specifically, does that mean like a continued forbearance program and direct help to homeowners? Or does, or does that mean like another CARES Act type things where states and local governments get more aid from the feds? You know, I, I think it kind of encapsulates a, a lot of options, but forbearance okay. is pretty incredible, right? When you think about it, especially if 80% of those mortgages are backed by the government. So, you know, really decisions could be made about federally backed mortgages about what that repayment looks like. Uh And so let's say they extend forbearance even more. They could design a repayment plan that spreads it out so that you never really reach a stage, you know, during repayment or when the forbearance is gone, that you suddenly at a spot where you can't afford this mortgage anymore. And that'll lead you to have to sell in a distressed way. That's incredible. Some people say like, oh, maybe we just tack it on to the end of the loan. It just extends this loan into the future. I mean, that would be an incredible advantage. But without something like that, then Mm -hmm. you do also need to support the income or support the job loss in a big way. Is that type of forbearance program, is that what the federal government should have done in, in the Great Recession? So that's something that's been in the back of my head is just like because of the nature of this pandemic induced recession, I think there was less general concern about moral hazard and some other factors where, you know, the federal government came in with like a huge amount of money just generally, but then also specifically help for and mortgage holders. Right. But that did not materialize, at least at the same magnitude in 2008, 2009, 2010. Should that have been the approach back then? It's hard for me to look back and, and say a should. You know, one of the things, if you think about the moral hazard element of this, is that yeah. back then, more of those homeowners probably should not have been. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was their fault. <laughs> I think they were the victims of predatory credit. They were victims of way too much exuberance in financial markets and fraud in yeah. terms of you know how people were talking about the riskiness of you know, mortgage-backed securities and everything like that. So in many ways, that's something to consider, you know, in terms of where the help should have gone or Mm. the hardship maybe should have gone. But should you have kept a homeowner in a home they couldn't afford over the long term? No, uh, no, right? In the sense of you wouldn't have been fixing a problem, you know, you would have been addressing an immediate need. But the idea there was, they really couldn't sustain it in terms of 
going through job loss, you know, and, and mm. really when you buy a home, that's the risk that you're taking. You know, when I talk to people about whether or not, you know, you should buy a home or whatever else, like let's say I'm talking to my sister, right? She'll think of the down payment as a cost. And the down payment isn't really a cost because you get to keep that money, right? It just changes form so that the cost yeah. is use. And I can't use that money should I go through job loss and I need it, mm. right? Yeah. So that's the yeah. risk of taking that money and going, you know, putting it in such an illiquid form. You still have the asset, but if you went through job loss, you wouldn't have it on hand if you needed it. And yet yeah. you would be committed to monthly payments. So to the extent of should you have kept that person in that situation where a lot yeah. of your wealth is tied up in an illiquid asset? No. I mean, I think you should have helped them in some other way, right? Yeah. Acknowledge yeah. that it probably wasn't their fault. You know, this was incredibly predatory credit, but you, should you have done it by keeping that person, you know, in that home long term? Uh, probably not. No. So, okay. Well, I have another important, very important should question for you right now. <laughs> I live in the city of Los Angeles. Should I break my lease and find a new place to rent? Can I get a better deal? And or is now a great time for me to buy a house? So let's talk first about should you break your lease, breaking your lease, you know, they could sue you to get that rent. So just take, That's keep right. that in mind, right? In, yep. in terms of breaking yep. your lease. Yeah. I'm not a lawyer, but I know lawyers. So that, that maybe I'm covered by that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Breaking your lease is not just costless. It's just not right. a matter of like dropping the keys and walking out. Right. right. Um, uh, okay. So that said, I think yep. one of the ideas could be be sure first you could really consider negotiating with your landlord. You know, most of the time I, I know that would seem like, why would this landlord actually negotiate with me and lower my rent. That never happens. Well, the crisis is so widespread that your individual interaction now with your landlord, they probably have more of an incentive to work with you on it. So if you okay. like your current place, do that. But yeah, certainly maybe wait if you know you have this timing on it. Wait until after July 31st when the unemployment benefits expire and to see how many opportunities there are maybe in terms of, you know, other people needing to pursue affordability strategies like doubling up and that could make rent go soft. So that might be a better timing. Now, should you buy a home? Deal right now is not the price, right? Prices aren't falling, but the deal is absolutely low mortgage rates. That can make a huge difference in your monthly affordability. So if you still have access to credit and you got to be more credit worthy than normal, man, and they will check your employment the day before you're going to close. So breaking a lease probably wouldn't be a good idea for my credit worthiness. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah, right. okay. yeah, that's not the way to do it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Right, exactly. Uh-huh. You absolutely have to be more credit worthy in this environment. But if you can access a mortgage at a interest rate, you know, that we've, it can be pretty incredible. Now, if you're going to do it, though, a few uh-huh. things to think about. Because the world is uncertain, mortgage rates and rates in general, all sorts of rates, (laughs) very volatile right now. And it'll be different too, depending on the mortgage broker that you go and reach out to. So if you're going to do it, you got to shop around and, you know, even on the same day and you'll get a wide range of quotes and you got to shop around to get the, you know, record low rate that you've heard about. Individual mortgage broker, their rate that they will quote will depend also on their business. They could be doing a, you know, a lot of business and have a high volume. And so they're going to increase the rates just because they don't, really need your business as much that day. But the next day, they might really lower it, you know, and it would be, you know, kind of like a sign to come on in. So definitely shop around. But then the other thing to think about, gosh, if you're in an environment where sure, prices aren't expected to fall, but they're expected to go soft and the buy rent break even kind of evaluation, like should I buy a home, still depends so much on how long you're going to stay in that house. 
right? Mm. You have the intuition like, mm. oh, if it's only six months, of course I would just rent. Right. And if it was six years, of course I would uh, buy, except that's not even very true in a really expensive market, like some of the California markets where the price to rent ratio is just insane with how expensive mm-hmm. some of these houses are gotten. So that's not always true. You can always run through a calculator on Zillow or something like that to evaluate that price, you know, break even. How long do you got to live there in order to make it worth it yeah. to buy? So I yeah. guess do that first. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the other thing to think about is prices are going to go soft. That means it'll take even longer in order to break even. Yeah. And so that means you need to make sure you have a good match between you and your house. And that's harder to do if inventory is so low. Huh. So yeah. keep looking. I mean, if you know, if you want to become a homeowner and you think you have access to high credit, like, you know, go get pre-approved and figure that out. Yeah. And then just be ready and looking, right? And, mm-hmm. and kind of waiting for the available house. Not just looking on Zillow. I mean, professionals, you know, too, can help you jump at a house. But the homes are selling faster than they were last year. And they were selling kind of fast last year. So, so this is this is not going to be easy. It never was easy. It's never going to be easy. Well, sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but hey, you know, just build more. And that'll, that'll more. take the pressure off. Okay. Well, there is the apartment construction literally right next door to me. So I'm seeing and experiencing what that's like at the moment. So for whatever that's worth. Yeah. All right. That's it for me. This has been super fun. Do you have, do you have anything else, Liam? Go to Zillow.com and uh, check out the calculators they have there. Calculators. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Play yeah. with calculators. There's also mm-hmm. portability calculators in there too. You know, mm-hmm. financial literacy mm-hmm. is so important when you're making mm-hmm. these big, big decisions. Thank you so much, Skylar. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And me, Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is my last name, Dillon, then my first name, Liam. And before we sign off, we want to give a shout out to our editor on this podcast, the very talented Victor Figueroa, who has helped us out with the last few episodes, which is probably why you've enjoyed listening to those probably (laughs) more so than previous ones. Yes. Victor is based in L.A. I know him from my days at the J School at USC. He's very talented. If you have freelance podcast editing work, you should contact him. He also, for my money, best looking guy in a beanie. Top five. Top five, like, can pull off the beanie guy that I know of, which is tough. You're not on that list, Liam. I know you're wondering. I know my strengths. Wearing a beanie is not one of them. So thank you again, Victor, for editing these. And we will be back, hopefully, in two weeks.